Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're ready to start all over again. And just as an introduction to starting all over again, the first most important thing is to realize that you don't know anything. As the Katzka Rebbe said, why are we so happy on Simchas Torah? That's the holiday where we finish the Torah and then we start it again. And everyone dances and everything like that. And he says, the reason why we're so happy is because we've gotten to the end of the Torah and we realize we haven't even begun it yet. So in other words, it's a little bit different from what most people think. It's not that we're so happy that we're completing it. We're celebrating the fact that we're never going to complete it. And with that in mind, the Torah ends with the words that Moshe did signs and wonders before the eyes of all the Jewish people. And it's a little bit vague. So Rashi wants to know specifically what miracle are we talking about? What action did Moshe take that was so wondrous that God is referencing it at the very end of the Torah itself? And the answer is breaking, smashing the tablets, smashing the luchos, which is surprising because here we're getting to the very end of the Torah the whole incident with the golden calf was, you know, books ago within the Torah. And now you're taking this incredibly traumatic event and you're saying that that's what God is referencing at the very end of the Torah. We're ending on that note. So it's a little surprising. But for me, what it means is that the Torah ends with the smashing of our preconceptions of what the Torah is. So very much in line with the Kutzka Rebbe is saying, and very much in preparation for starting the Torah again. In other words, we're just getting rid of the idea that, oh, I know God better than God knows God. I know God better than God knows God. You know why? Because God is an idea inside my head. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go into more of that in a moment. You know, one, one of my favorite teachings, and it's just so important because it's so, it grounds us in terms of humility, which is so essential. Just this idea that God is not an idea inside your head. You are an idea inside God's head, and God doesn't have a head. <laughs> we can't remind ourselves of that enough. Or my new articulation of that. You ready? Here's, here's a new one. You're not in the God business. God is in the you business, okay? So that's, that's, that's another version of the same idea. In other words, we are hardwired, after eating from the tree of knowledge, we are hardwired to think that we are the center of the universe and we allow God to exist. And this is something that over the course of a person's lifetime, they have to kind of undo. And ideally we get there. Ideally, we get to this like exalted place where we've learned enough to know that we know nothing. But as Steve Jobs famously said, simple is hard, right? Simple is hard. Like to refine yourself to just being a, a simple being, you have to comb through all of the crookedness, all the knots in your heart, in order to get to that place of simplicity. And so it's a, 
you know, it's a, it's a lifelong process. But we're going to talk about some of the implications of eating from the tree of knowledge. And basically, I'll just kind of get to the bottom line. Basically, we disconnected our hearts from our minds. You know, there's a, a famous saying, and I, I don't think there's a Torah source for it, but it's, it's very much in line with Torah teachings, that the furthest distance in the universe is between the heart and the mind. And so where did that disconnect come from? In other words, so many of us are rational to a fault. What does that mean? We presume that everything can be known. And the other extreme is that, you know what? If I'm not feeling it, I'm not doing it. For some people, it's just all in the mind. For other people, it's all in the heart. I'm sorry, I'm just not feeling it. Okay, well, so you're not feeling paying your taxes? I'm not feeling it. But you know what? That will catch up on you. It will catch up on you. It sounds like a wonderful, modern way to go through life, right? Follow your bliss. Like, have you, have you heard this addendum to that? I followed my bliss off a cliff. <laughs> I, I followed my bliss into a lifetime of unemployment. It's, um, emotionality is huge. It's huge. And we have to, we have to use it. We have to harness it. But we have to harness it with the intellect. And we have to make one coherent being out of ourselves where the mind and the heart are together. And then we really become fully evolved. That's what it is. So knowing how to weigh those things and bring them together is a lot of the art form of enlightenment, of Torah enlightenment. Okay, with that in mind, I wanna give you this, tell you a parable. And it's, I think it's a wonderful parable. And my experience, I've been telling it around lately, my experiences is that when I get to the end, People's reaction is bewilderment. So <laughs> I'm warning you in advance. When we get to the end of this story, if you go, I don't know what that means. That's okay. We're going to try to explain it. Okay, now this comes from the Yalkut Shimoni, which is a collection of midrashim, of rabbinical truths to express very, very deep ideas about the human condition and about the nature of the Torah and God and reality and all the rest. Okay, so here are our cast of characters. We've got a lion, that's the king. We've got the fox, and we've got the donkey. The donkey is the toll keeper. He's collecting the taxes. And the fox and the lion are traveling together, and they get to this toll, and the donkey asks the king, the lion, to pay the tax. And the fox takes great umbrage. That's the king. You don't ask the king to pay the tax. And the donkey explains, I take the money from the king and then I put it back into his treasury. Well, this doesn't go over well. The king tears the donkey into pieces. And he tells the fox, arrange the limbs of the donkey, and we're going to have a banquet later on. And then 
the lion leaves. Now, the fox comes across the choice part of the donkey, the heart, and the fox eats the heart himself. Now, when the king returns, the king sees the beautifully displayed banquet, and the king says to the fox, where's the heart? And the fox tells the king, the donkey didn't have a heart. And the king is amazed. And the fox says, oh, king, if the donkey had a heart, could he have ever have gone against your will? Thus concludes the parable. <laughs> so if you are bewildered, help is on the way. We're going to try to explain it. So what was going on with the donkey? What, what's the problem with his logic? I take from the king, and then I put it back into his treasury. There's something very problematic about that, as evidenced by the fact that the king ripped him apart. That's question number one. Question number two, what was the fox thinking? <laughs> Did the fox actually think that he outsmarted the king? That's question number two. So I'm going to give you my understanding of this medrash. And it's touching on the idea of getting your mind and your heart together and how both have to be given over to God in the proper way. So the problem with the foxes is that he thinks that he outsmarted the king. And you can't outsmart God. You can't outsmart God. And the issue with the donkey is very interesting. So I want to approach it in the following way. The Maharal, in a different context, points out that the word for donkey in Hebrew is chamor. And the word for materiality is chomer. It's the same word. Donkey and materiality is the same word. And if you think about it, what's the main use of donkeys? They're used to carry things, carry heavy weights, carry burdens, physical loads. So it makes sense that donkey and materiality would be the same word because they're closely related to each other. There's a very beautiful teaching, just to go a step further into this, that there are two ways that Mashiach can come. One is in the context of this apocalyptic war, Golgu Magog, right, that we read about on Sukkot. And by the way, we have a very important rule in Torah, which is that no negative prophecy has to come true. Right? All the positive ones have to come true. No negative ones have to come true. In other words, it's all contingent on where we as humanity and where the Jewish people are holding in terms of our relationship with God. So none of the negative ones have to take, take place. So that being the case, it makes sense that the messianic era can come in one of two ways, either in this very horrible way, essentially, or the Messiah will arrive like a man riding a white donkey. The Messiah will arrive riding a white donkey. So what does that mean? So that's the version where we just flow into this next 
evolution of the world. And the idea being, again, that the donkey represents the material world. And the Messiah will be riding the donkey. Meaning to say that materiality will not be controlling us, but we will be in control of the physical universe. And as such, I don't know if the Maharal says this, but it makes sense that the donkey then becomes white. Because in other words, we have elevated materiality and purified it by using it with total intention, L'Shem Shemayim, for the sake of God. So now let's go back to the fox, the donkey, and the king's story. The donkey says to the king, pay the tax. And the fox is like, that's the king. You don't tell the king to pay the tax. And the donkey says, no, I collect the tax from the king, and then I return it to his treasury. So what's the problem with this? We view our relationship with God as a transactional arrangement. I'm going to say that again. We view our relationship with God as a transactional relationship. In other words, okay, God, you gave me a list of mitzvahs. I understand these are the things that I'm supposed to do. I'm doing these things. Where's my blessing? And I don't want any hardships. And that is the mindset of so many people. But do you know what that's missing? The heart. That's missing the heart. In other words, to view God as another aspect, remember the donkey represents materiality. To view God as another element of the material universe is to completely not understand who God is. A lot of people think there's a lot of things in creation. You know, we've got peanuts and subways and baseball and typewriters and God and bubblegum. And it's like, what? <laughs> Go back a step. What was that before bubblegum? God. Wait a second. God is not another thing on a list of things that exist. And so many people just think that, okay, here are all the things in the world, and God is one of the things on this list of the things in the world. What is the truth? Everything that exists, exists within God. Everything that exists, exists within God. So I heard Gedalia Gerfine say it like this, this was a life-changing teaching for me because he put this thought so simply. He says, what's the difference between a monotheist and a polytheist? Someone who believes in one God or someone who believes in many gods. And he says that a polytheist believes God is in the clouds and God is in the mountains, God is in the ocean, right? Whereas someone who believes in one God understands that the entire world exists within God. And God transcends the world. So God saturates all of creation and transcends all of creation simultaneously. So when the lion rips apart the donkey, he exposes the heart. He exposes the heart. Now I heard in discussing this with a variety of people over the last few days, the same comment kept on coming up from a variety of people. So I'm going to report it to you because I think it's very deep. Which is, what if the fox is like the Yetzirah? 
And what does the fox do? It consumes the heart. Right? Like our Yitzhahara says, you know what? Don't fall too much in love with God. Like, don't get carried away. You don't want to be a fanatic, right? That's the fox eating the heart. By the way, I heard a wonderful definition of what it means to be a fanatic the other day. A fanatic is anyone who's doing one more mitzvah than you are. <laughs> right? And what's a heretic? Someone who's doing one less mitzvah than you are. <laughs> I love that because it points to something else, which is that each one of us thinks that we have achieved the perfect balance. <laughs> Don't you get it? Just be more like me. It's so simple. <laughs> so meanwhile, this is what went on when we ate from the tree of knowledge. We divorced our minds and our hearts. Not only that, but we turned our view of the world from an us-looking-out perspective to an us-looking-in perspective. And so we made ourselves into the final authority, which is a little crazy, you know? The Beis Yaakov, who is the, the second Ishmitzer Rebbe, he said that each one of us deep down thinks that we created ourselves. Isn't that an amazing thought? Because it's not rational at all. Everyone knows that they have parents. And yet, deep, deep down, every single person thinks that they created themselves. This is an aspect of eating from the tree of knowledge. This idea of turning inward, that we start with ourselves as the only thing that we truly know. And then we build our notion of reality around that. And then maybe we invite God in, maybe we don't. And if God doesn't behave according to our notion, our normative standards of behavior, then something's wrong. I'm getting too religious or I got to get rid of God or some, something's wrong. So again, reaching this place of not knowing is the ultimate. This idea of smashing the luchos, right? Before we re-enter the Torah. Smashing these tablets, these preconceptions. And just knowing that God is so close and at the same time, He's beyond, 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 beyond. If I were to try to pick one phrase that I heard from Reb Shlomo, more than any other phrase, was him saying, what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? And I'll tell you a personal story that happened to me this past week. I was really dreading going to the dentist. <laughs> and... I missed a cycle of teeth cleaning and I knew I had like extra plaque and I floss and I brush regularly, but the plaque is there, which means that this dental visit was going to be more painful. And I just, I didn't want to go. And I knew I wasn't being rational. And finally, you know, it's so funny how the, the holidays, going through the holiday cycle can affect you in different ways. Well, it, it, it forced a conversation between me and myself, which was very hardcore and rational. I said to myself, what are you afraid of? I said, it's going to be painful. 
And then I thought to myself, well, the longer you wait, the more painful it's going to be. If your main fear is that it's going to be painful, go today. Because <laughs> it's actually only going to get more painful. So go today. And somehow this got through to my brain and I, I was like, okay, so I made the appointment. That morning, before I went, I was doing the morning service, I was davening shachars, and I got to the, the place in the Shemona Esrei where you can kind of pray for anything. And, and I, I prayed to God, I said, God, please may the dental appointment not be too painful. <laughs> And then I heard my own words. And I said, you know, I can pray for anything. Why should I pray that it should be painful at all? And so I said, God, please may it not be painful at all. And you have to understand, this struck me as a great chiddish, like a brand new idea that you could pray for such a thing. So what happened, I get to my dental appointment. Now, I've been seeing this person for at least five years. I sit in the chair, and the first thing she does is she puts a numbing cream on my teeth. Never before has she put a numbing cream on my teeth. And it was pain-free. The whole session was pain-free. I was shocked. I was shocked. So pray for everything. Pray for anything. You know? You, you don't know. You don't, we don't know. We don't know. And I felt so loved that, that God heard that prayer about my teeth cleaning and responded to it in like this extraordinary way. So let's go deeper. The Zohar says that the entire Torah is contained within the first word of the Torah, Breshis. Not only that, but all of Breshis is contained within the first letter of Breshis, the base of Breshis. Not only that, but the entirety of the Torah is actually contained within the dot in the middle of Breshis. And for years, actually for decades, I was waiting to learn Torahs about the dot of Breshis. And I finally came across a book that gave me Torah after Torah about the dot of Breshis. It's amazing. Basically, it's all the upper worlds being held within this lower world. All the wisdom of the higher realms is being contained within the base of Breshis. The base of Breshis represents this dimension, this world that we live in. And that dot represents all the wisdom of the universe as it's sort of compacted down into this universe in the form of that dot in the middle of the base of Breshis. Isn't that awesome? That awesome. And so it's telling you that the location of all the wisdom and the reason and everything of the entire universe is contained within the Torah itself. And of course, since everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds, it has to appear within the first letter of the Torah. And then the rest of it is just the unfolding of that wisdom, which is this never-ending process. Amazing. Amazing, 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 amazing. It's endless. But I want to highlight one thing, because when we think about creation, we really have to know this as a truth. And it goes a little bit against, I think, the scientific 
secular understanding of the universe, which is, I think, maybe one of the reasons why God begins his introduction to reality with this teaching. And I saw this from the Afstrafser Rebbe, one of the great Hasidic masters in Poland about a hundred years ago, Rabbi Rebbe Achil Meir. And he said the following, that one of the levels of the Bays of Breshis is that it's hinting at two ways that God is running the universe. One way is through the natural order. You throw up a ball, it comes back down. Gravity. Someone runs in front of a car, they get hit. Right? You drink your milk, your bones get stronger. But we also have this idea of the supernatural order. And the supernatural order is the other way that God is running the world. And both of them are fused together by this united entity called the Bays, the letter Bays, which again is the number two of the first letter of the Torah, our introduction to reality. Remember, the Zohar says that the Torah is the blueprint of reality. So the very introduction to this realm is this notion that there are two orders that are weaved together, the supernatural order and the regular order of creation. Now with that in mind, I want to share something with you that came to me, which is we're always reading the beginning of the Torah in the month of Tishrei. Tishrei is the month that we have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Hoshana Rabbah, Simchas Torah, Shemini Atzeres, right? It's the holiest month. And it's also when the entire universe is created anew. So we know that there's 12 tribes and there's one tribe that correlates with each of the 12 months. So the tribe for Tishrei is Ephraim. So why the tribe of Ephraim? You know what's interesting about Ephraim? He's out of order. He's the younger of the two brothers. It's Menashe is the older, and then Ephraim is the younger. And what happens is, Yaakov Avinu, at the end of his life, goes to give the two of them a blessing, and he takes his right arm, which is the, the stronger arm, the preferred arm, like for instance, when you make a blessing over something, you're supposed to hold it in your right hand. If you give tzedakah, charity to someone, you're supposed to give it from your right hand. So he takes his right hand, and he puts it over Ephraim's head, which is the younger. And then he takes his left hand, and he puts it on Menashe's hand. And Yosef witnesses this, and he says to his father, no, 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 you got it out of order. And then not only does he tell his father, Yaakov, the great Yaakov, remember, Yaakov is the greatest of the Avos, right? Greater than Abraham, greater than Yitzchak. Here, his son Yosef is telling him, hey, 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 dad, you got it wrong. <laughs> Not only that, but how strongly does Yosef feel? He physically takes his hands and tries to reverse them, which is like, like, that's like, you know, when, when, when the generational blessing 
comes. To think that he's actually grabbing his hands and trying to undo what Yaakov has in mind, it's like a chutzpah. Of course, Yosef Hatzadik, the great one, meant nothing bad by it, obviously, obviously, obviously. So what was going on in Yosef's head? Well, I can give you my own armchair analysis. I can tell you that Yosef was one of the younger sons in the family, even though he was the eldest of the second wife. But nonetheless, in terms of the Torah order, he was one of the younger ones, and he was the most favored, and it caused chaos, absolute chaos, and jealousy among the other brothers. And they end up selling him into slavery, and we say that the sinas chinim, the causeless hatred, is all rooted in the problems with the brothers. And now here's Yosef witnessing their father doing the same thing where the younger is being favored over the older. And so I think that it's understandable, at least from my perspective, that Yosef would have this visceral response to what Jacob, his father, is doing. Jacob tells Yosef, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Remember, we say, Titen Emes Yaakov. The greatness of Yaakov is this element of truth, ultimate truth, right? Yaakov knows what he's doing. He sees that greater descendants are coming out of Ephraim, right? And he's going to elevate him above Menashe. Now, by the way, to Menashe's great, great credit, unlike the other brothers, Menashe remains totally peaceful with Ephraim. And, you know, we have this historical kind of like hardship between brothers. We, we have it in this week's Parsha, the first set of brothers, Cain and Abel, right? Cain murders Abel. And then we've got the, the, the brothers, as I mentioned, among the 12 tribes. It's a sign of incredible beauty that, that Menashe doesn't have jealousy for his younger brother. And that's the answer that's often given why on Friday nights when a parent blesses their children, they say that you should be like Ephraim and Menashe because there's no hatred, no jealousy. Okay, what is the connection between the tribe of Ephraim and the month of Tishrei? Well, Ephraim stands for the supernatural order. Why? Because he's not the firstborn. And here he's being blessed as the firstborn. Not only that, but Yaakov says, I am going to count the two of them as my sons. Well, they're his grandsons. He's counting them as his sons. So do you see how space and time are being flipped on their head? Space, because his body came out second. Time, because they're not Yaakov's sons, they're Yaakov's grandsons. So the whole order of space and time is being turned upside down. And why? Because the descendants of Ephraim are even greater than the descendants of Menashe, meaning to say the merits of Ephraim are greater than the merits of Menashe. 
Meaning to say what? That through our actions, we can change the universe in a supernatural way. And all of the work that we're doing on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Hoshana Rabbah, Shmini Atzeres, Simchas Torah, it's changing reality. It's changing reality. This is the supernatural element of prayer that we're reordering the universe. And that's beloved to God. Because God, of all the tribes, refers to us by the name of Ephraim and says, you're like my beloved Ephraim. Isn't that something? This idea of being partners with God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right? That I can pray. Let it not be painful at all. And the first time ever, all of a sudden, she starts squirting my gums with pain relief. I mean, it's the most mundane example you can think of. But still, that's the beauty of it. Okay. So, I want to give you another deep insight into the letter Bays. One of the teachings that I genuinely believe that you can't understand your lives and you can't understand this world unless you absolutely carve this idea into your head is that the world isn't finished yet. And you see that in the first word of the Torah. Breshis means out of beginnings, out of beginnings. What does beginning imply? Beginning implies a middle and an end. In other words, the very first word of the Torah is telling us that we're part of a process that's unfolding and that you are part of the process and that we were created to be partners with God in terms of finishing off. See, so many people think that, what does it mean to be Jewish? I'll tell you what it means to be Jewish. I got born and it was tag, you're it. And now I have to go through the rest of my life as a Jew. And what does it mean to go through my life as a Jew? It means to drag the past into the present. This is what people think. I am dragging the past into the present. Why? Because I'm a Jew. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's not what it means to be a Jew. Judaism is this revolutionary theology about seeing the perfection of the world. We're not looking backwards and just pulling the past into the present. We're looking forward and working toward the completion of the universe. So where do you see that in the letter Bays? <laughs> so what if I were to tell you that the letter Bays is written in an incomplete way? Well, that would be a very novel idea, wouldn't it? Because you say, well, wait a second. What's wrong with the letter Bays? It's not written incompletely. That's how you write the letter Bays, for goodness sakes. But what did we say earlier? Right? Now we're going even deeper. What did, what did we say earlier? We said everything is contained within the first word of the Torah, and the first word of the Torah is contained within the first letter of the Torah. Aha. And what else did we say? We said that the world isn't finished yet. Aha. So now it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That the first letter of the Torah should be written in an incomplete form. Okay, well, picture the letter Bays in your mind right now. It's 
open on one side, isn't it? It's three lines. But you know something? Where's that fourth line? In other words, it looks like an open box. But where's that line that finishes it off? That makes it a final mem. It's not there yet. You know why? Because the world isn't complete yet. I want to make sure that you're following me. I wish I had some charts to call up. If you don't, just Google image the letter B's and the final mem. The final mem is in the shape of a box. But you can make the letter B's into a final mem by just closing off that open space, <laughs> right? On the left side of it. Make a line there and the base becomes a mem. All right, well, we haven't fully communicated yet, so let me give you another step. It says in the Shema, in the first paragraph of the Shema, that you should take all of the words of the Torah and you should speak them and put them on your heart. And you'll recognize the Hebrew I'm sure you've said it thousands of times over the course of your life. Vidibarta bam. Vidibarta bam. Which means speak them. Speak them. So them is referring to the Torah. The word bam is referring to the Torah. How do you spell the word bam? Bez final mem. <laughs> now, what if I told you so, so the word bomb is actually referring to all the words of the Torah. Now, the Torah is actually composed of two parts. You've got the, what we call Tor Shebek Tzav and Tor Shabal Peh, which is the written Torah. That's the five books of Moses and all the other books of the Torah. And then you've got the Talmud, right? The Gomorrah, the Mishnah, that's Tor Shabal Peh. That's the oral law. So what's the difference? When God gave Moses the Torah at Mount Sinai, he gave it to Moses letter by letter. Okay, write this letter down. Now write this letter down. Now write this letter down. And when they got to the end of a passage, God said, don't write this down, but I'm going to explain to you what that verse means. One example that I just love to give because it's so clear is it says, pre eats Hadar, which means the fruit of the beautiful tree we're supposed to take on Sukkot, and that's part of the Arbaminum. That's part of the things that we shake. Now, can you imagine anything more subjective than telling people to take the fruit from the beautiful tree? <laughs> so one person would take a cherry, and another person would take a mandarin orange, and another person would take a grapefruit. Whatever they found to be, Beautiful, that's what they would take and that's what they would shake. Except for thousands of years, in all four corners of the world, they've only taken one fruit, which is the esric, which is a pretty unlikely fruit to pick if you have this, this command, take the fruit from the beautiful tree. But this is how the oral law came down. After Moshe wrote down the words, take the fruit from the beautiful tree, God says, don't write this down. That is the esric. 
So what we have, and this is ultimately becomes the Talmud, what we have is not just the passages from the Torah themselves, but we have God's own explanation what these passages mean. And this is unique to the Jewish people. Because as you can imagine, how you interpret the Torah could be very subjective. Right? You can put your own truth on the Torah's truth. And how many religions have taken passages of the Torah and completely corrupted what the Torah means by putting their own truth on God's truth? Except God himself explained what these passages mean. And that's what makes the Jewish people's understanding of the Torah, the Bible, different from all other people's. Because it's God's own explanation. Okay, so now that you know that we've got the written law and the oral law, what is the first letter of the written law? Well, we know it's the Bays of Breshis. Guess what the last letter <laughs> of the oral law is? The final mem. So when we say vidibartabam, speak these words, what we have is a contraction of the entirety of all of the Torah itself. Do you understand? From the very first word of the written law, to the very last word of the oral law. That's the word bomb. Now, since everything is contained within the Torah, and everything is contained within the first word of the Torah, and everything is contained within the first letter of the first word of the Torah, isn't it amazing <laughs> that the letter Bez with one line becomes the letter final mem? that you have there in front of your eyes, the word bomb. All right, but we still don't fully understand it. As the Ramban says, the Torah is black fire written on white fire. Black fire is all the revealed things in creation. White fire is the spiritual realms that are there that just can't be seen. Both Physics and mathematics today postulate unseen dimensions. That the idea that the unseen actually exists used to be just the realm of faith. And now science is completely on board that there are dimensions that are there that can't be seen. Do, do you see how science is catching up to Torah? So now, let's go to Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver. The letter Bez is missing one element. It's missing the closing of the box, the completion of creation. Right now, creation is still incomplete. Mashiach's not here yet. Perfection isn't here yet, but it's coming. And that's reflected in the Bez of Breshis. But that final line it's there, but it hasn't been revealed yet. Is there on a white fire level, but it hasn't been revealed on a black fire level yet. And now, amazingly, 
Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, what is that aspect that hasn't been revealed of creation yet? So maybe you'll say, the third, the third holy temple, the Messiah. Right? You'll come up with different answers, but listen to what his answer is because it's awesome. It's awesome. He says, the reward for the righteous. The reward for the righteous. That's what hasn't been revealed in this world yet. You see, this is the ultimate question that everyone goes to. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? This is everybody's question and everyone expresses it in their own way, right? How could the Holocaust have happened? There's a, another articulation of the same question. Millions of articulations of this from the beginning of history. So this is the missing piece of the letter Bayes, which is going to turn into this complete structure, which is the final mem. The reward for the righteous is going to be revealed. And then you're going to see, in an openly revealed way, the oneness of God. Because you're going to see justice in its most amazing revealed fashion. Okay, now I want to go even deeper. I want to show you how from the very beginning, or even before the very beginning of creation, that God already had the end in mind. We say it every week in Lecha Dodi. We say, Sof which means that the very end was envisioned by God from the very beginning. Meaning to say that just like an architect envisions the completed home and then starts to build it, so too God had the end of creation in mind before he created the world. So in other words, if everything is contained within the first letter of the Torah, we should see the end in the beginning as well. And we do. So I already showed you how the final mem is contained within the base of Rashi's. And I gave it to you in this way, that that was a vision of the entirety of the Torah, both the written Torah and the oral Torah were all present. And not only that, but that the reward for the righteous is there on a white fire level waiting to be revealed. But I want to show you how the final mem stands for Mashiach. That's the mem that's just waiting to be revealed within the letter base of Breshis. So there's a wonderful teaching from the Magalia Mukos, famous teaching, that the word Adam, which means man, human being, the first person, that within that very first person was the whole future of humanity. So Adam is spelled Aleph Dalid Mem, and he points out that Aleph stands for Adam himself, the first person. The letter Dalid stands for David HaMelech, King David, who's the soul of Mashiach. And then the final mem of Adam stands for Mashiach. So in other words, we've said that everything is worlds within worlds. So here you have within the first man, the whole history of humanity leading up to the redemption. 
But what I'd like to point out here is that Mashiach here is represented in Adam's name, which is the final Mem, which, as I pointed out several times now, is contained in the letter Bez. And so there's another reference to Mashiach on the level of the final Mem, which is quite fascinating. In all of Tanakh, that's all of the books of the Torah, there is one instance only of a final letter appearing in the middle of a word. And that's, that's quite surprising because by definition, final letters should only come at the end of a word. But there is one exception to this, and it's in Yeshaya, Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, where the final mem, that letter, appears in the middle of a word. And interestingly, that verse is referring to Mashiach. Not only is the verse referring to Mashiach, but the final mem in the middle of the word is a reference to Mashiach. So here I'm giving you two examples how the final mem stands for Mashiach. Also, I'd like to add a third level. This realm that we exist in is called Machus. In terms of the 10 spherot, that's the bottom of all the spherot. And, you know, if you're referencing a cosmic map of the universe, where is, where is Earth located? So that would be in this dimension called Machus, this sphere called Machus, which means kingship, by the way. Anyway, so that begins with the letter Mem. And you're going to see this world perfected. It's going to reach its fullness. And so that would be represented, I'd like to say, by the letter Mem becoming the final Mem, meaning to say that this, that this realm itself is going to evolve to completion. Okay, now I want to offer a, an interpretation because a lot of people, when they find out that there's a final Mem in the middle of a word, they want to know, well, what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Like, why do that? And I'd like to offer the following interpretation that came to me today on my birthday, actually. So, and that is also from a very famous verse from Yeshaya, from Isaiah. Chapter 60, verse 22. Isaiah says in the name of Hashem that I am Hashem. In its time, I will hasten it. So it's talking about the arrival of Mashiach, and it's contradictory. In its time means that there's an appointed time for the arrival of the redemption. And then it says, I will hasten it. Well, which is it? Is it going to come in its fixed time, or is it going to come sooner than its fixed time? So this is the question that the Talmud asks on this, and they give a fantastic answer, which is that, there is a deadline for the redemption. It's coming. However, if we merit it, it will come sooner. So in its time, meaning it's inevitable, it's fixed into creation, it will come. However, if we merit it, I will hasten it, says God. So I want to say that if the final Mem stands for Mashiach, then that is the reason why the final mem is coming in the middle of the word that's discussing Mashiach instead of at the end of the word. In other words, that is a reference, I would like to suggest, that Hashem can bring it sooner if we merit it. And that's why it's coming in the middle of the word, to show that it's up to us.
And how do we do it? How do we do it? By putting our hearts and our minds together. So the word breishis I saw from Rabbi Trugman. You can rearrange the letter breishis to spell shiras olive bays. The song of the olive bays. So it's through joy. It's through joy. Through joy, through the combining of the heart and the mind together. By us becoming integrated individuals. We integrate all of creation around us. You fix yourself, you fix the world. You fix yourself, you fix the world. That's what it is. Because ultimately, all of this comes down to joy. Because with joy comes mind expansion. And when you have expanded consciousness, you have the ability not just to see the physical realm in front of you, but all the inner aspects that are also present, the unseen realms, become apparent in front of you also. Not that you can see angels or things like that. I'm not talking about that. But you understand intuitively in your heart that God is there and that he's running the show and that he loves us. That's what I'm talking about. And when we're so focused on what's directly in front of us, all we see is physicality. Right? That's the problem with the donkey. The donkey not having a heart. Him having this transactional relationship with God. I take from the king and I put it back in his treasury. All of a sudden when the heart comes in, when emotionality comes in, when the union of the heart and the mind comes in, when joy comes in, when expanded consciousness comes in, now all of a sudden all the elements of reality open up before us and we see not just the body of something, but we see the soul of it as well. You see, this world is a big vessel to hold this tremendous light. Just like the letter Bayes is this amazing vessel that holds the dot within the vase, which is all the heavenly aspects of wisdom. But do you know what the problem is? People go through this world and they just see the vessel and they don't see the light inside the vessel. And so that's our challenge, to see the vessel, to see the beauty of this world, the physical realm, but also to see the light inside the vessel, to see the heavenly realms that are contained in this world as well. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.